Welcome again to Shelf Life. This week, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Dana McCauley. Now, Dana is an award-winning author and an environmental activist. Many of us know her from her work with the Jamaica Environment Trust, but for book lovers, we know her as a brilliant author, the brilliant writer of books such as Gone to Drift, Dog Heart, Hurricane, and her latest novel, which we're gonna talk about today, Daylight Come. Hi, Dana. Good to have you on Shelf Life, finally. <laughs> Hi, Judith. Thanks for having me. You know, um, I've read three of your books. I'm a big fan. Absolutely love your work. And I think part of it is because, apart from the fact that I really read mostly Caribbean authors, but your work is very real. Even your fantasy work is very real. <laughs> And I'm going to get to that when we talk about Daylight Come. But before we even talk about the books, I always like for my, my viewers to get to know you a little bit. Tell me a little bit about Dana growing up in Jamaica, where you're born, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so I was born in Kingston, Natal Hospital. Uh, my, my family actually comes from rural Jamaica, though. But my grandparents moved to Kingston, you know, as part of my grandfather's transport business. And if you're older, you might remember Macaulay's country buses. That was that was my family. Yes. I grew up in Kingston. Um, I don't, it's funny that I find it strange now to think I've lived all my life in a city because I don't think of myself as a city person. <laughs> but I was fortunate that my parents liked the outdoors. So I grew up, you know, going to the beach, hiking. Mm -hmm. On the sea, my, my family was kind of sea going. And I think that is what gave me my love of the outdoors. Okay. You know? um, but mind you, I have two sisters and they had the same experiences and it didn't kind of have the same effect. Impact on them, you know, yeah. So it's it's not a very simple thing that you can say, you know, experiences outdoors translates oh. into love for not as simple as that. No, it's you know? not because of my family. I'm the I'm the the, the outdoors one, and right, we all grew yeah. up running around in the outdoors. same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I went to school in Kingston, St Andrew High School, and got married very young, and so didn't go to university at their mm -hmm. time, and and actually went back and did a management degree. In fact, my first degree is in in business okay. in math. So I like to say I've lived my entire life backwards because I've done everything at the wrong time. In sense. Well, we're kindred spirits then, because I kind of lived yeah. mine backwards too. <laughs> yeah. And I always wanted to write. It was my earliest ambition. Okay. Um, I was a reader, reader from very young, a voracious reader. And, but, you know, it really took me until I was, I think, over 50 to actually do what was involved in writing a book, sending it out, revising, you know, before I actually published um, my first book. So because it's quite a process. Yes, and quite a know, process. there is a lot of there is a lot of rejection involved mm -hmm. at whatever stage of your career. Don't think that you get to some point and then you don't get rejected anymore. Mm -hmm. No matter how successful you are, you still get things that you've written and sent out rejected. Wow. Have to wrap your head around that. that. That's that's hard to wrap one's head around because, as you say, especially as somebody who writes myself and and knows how the rejection thing works, um, you kind of expect that you get to a certain point where you have these very successful books and rejection ends. 
No, it doesn't happen. In fact, I saw um, a post from Bernadine Everest who won the Booker Prize last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she posted on something that she'd been commissioned to write, and it was a, and it was rejected. Wow. So there's, and there's a Booker Prize winning novelist. You know, it's from I mean, seven or eight books behind her, and tremendous success, and she still got rejected. So yeah, right. to wrap it. All right, I feel a little better now. Then. Yeah. <laughs> a little better when I get rejected knowing that even my Booker Prize winner is being yeah. rejected and that, that and, then is- la- and then and then latterly I'll just say I, you know sort of noticed all the sort of areas I'd loved as a child being destroyed and that's what led me into my environmental life which started in about 1989 so I've been doing it for over 30 years now and we know you as not just a writer, but as a serious environmentalist, not, not somebody who loves the environment like me, but a serious environmentalist. And we thank you on behalf of planet Earth and those of us trying to save it. <laughs> we thank you. I get thank very you. annoyed by these missions to Mars. I'm like, what the heck are we doing at Mars? After we've ruined Earth, what are we doing? Looking for somewhere else to ruin? You know, it yeah. just... I can't wrap my head around this whole Mars thing and this obsession with Mars, you know, and until the little people come down here and tell us to stop, I think we're going to keep doing it. But anyway, that's a conversation for another time. (laughs) I really want to talk about daylight come, but before I talk about daylight come, I want to touch a little bit on dog heart because dog heart was the first of your books that I read. I've read dog heart, hurricane and daylight come and dog heart touched my heart because, and and it's even more relevant now too, because Dog Heart was kind of based on Dog Paw, who was just recently released from prison on appeal. And when I saw that, I thought of you and I thought of the book and just um, how that book talked so much about the social ills of Jamaica. Dog Paw's release, first of all, how much of that book is based on truth? So, so, you know, all fiction has its basis in something that has inspired the writer to write about it. And while it is true that I had a relationship with a family of 10 boys, of four, sorry, four boys, their mother, not 10, four mm-hmm. boys and their mother, for about 10 years, that's where the 10 came from. The, the dark heart, I sat at my computer and I made it up. Um, the events that are in the book and the characters that are in the book are are fictional they are my imagination so it's not in any sense a description of christopher linton's life but my relationship with him as a young boy and his brothers you know did get me thinking about you know the the sort of hurdles that a young boy like himself face and i kind of opened my eyes to you know, these sort of social problems that I've lived here all my life, except for two years away at school. And I have to say, say I was humble and in some ways ashamed Mm -hmm. of my sort of blindness to the realities of so many of our young people. So that's really, that's what I want to say. I mean, it was definitely caught my my experience, my actual experience did get me thinking about these things. Um, There is one scene in, in the book that is pretty much how it happened, which was the, the, the scene where we encounter Dexter at Sovereign. Ah, uh, the young boy begging actually, at Sovereign. Right. That actually was where the, this relationship started. It, it wasn't, in fact, with Christopher Linton, but his older brother. Oh. And so I sat at my computer and made up. And the 
name is a complete coincidence. This book was originally called Car Park Boy, and it, it started as a short story, which was published by a Caribbean writer under okay. that title, which I never liked that title, though. And I'm bad at titles, so I was kind of casting around in my brain for what else could I call this book. And then I heard a discussion, I think it was on radio, about some other crime, some completely unrelated crime, where one of the people commenting said that, you know, men are dog-hearted in Jamaica. And I thought, yes, that's that's the title for my book. Because I actually don't believe in this idea of people being dog-hearted, you know, as some kind of intrinsic character. Right. And... And just from your book, I mean, it's a brilliant title. And it's interesting that it's coincidence that it's not about his life when so much of it seems to parallel his life, you know, almost as if you saw it coming or some kind of serial. I don't, I don't claim any such, any such thing, you know. Um, that there's also a scene in there about sand mining, which I wrote because of my environmental work, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Thought I, and I, you know, I'd seen these operations and therefore I had a basis to describe them. Right. And then to discover later, much later, years later, that in fact Christopher was involved in sand mining, that's a complete coincidence. Wow. You know, that's so there are lots of coincidences in the book in that, you know, predate um, how, how his life unfolded in public. And it's just one I of those found, things. <laughs> what I found um, very stirring about dog heart and, and and I think that's the word I'm going to use is stirring about dog heart and stirred my conscience and I think would have stirred the conscience of everybody who's who read that book is just how much the social ills of the country we call home of Jamaica or you know how those social ills have contributed to the crime wave that we have you sure. know the gap between the rich and the poor, the gap between the haves and the have-nots, how people like Christopher um, Dexter in your book started so far behind that he just couldn't possibly catch up. Which he, he says in the book, you know, um, that it's like a race on sports day and you're so far behind and the other kids are wearing shoes and you're barefoot and the track is stony, you know, and it certainly caused me to think deeply about these things, reflect about them, to also recognize that my own sort of upper middle class prescriptions of the solution being education were entirely too simplistic, you yeah. know. And I wanted in writing the book to humanize the kids that we all drive past on the street. I will say that was much more, much more common then than it is now, but it still is there. Yeah. And, and ask us to reach into our hearts to try and, you know, imagine the life circumstances of these kids and find some compassion and empathy for them. And that really, you really achieved that with Dog Heart was getting to, because it's easy to look at a criminal. Honestly, it's so easy to look at a criminal and say, ah, oh, you know, I'm dog hearted, man, I'm cold hearted. But we, we rarely stop to think of what brought him there. You know, why mm. is he like that? And I, although this, this conversation is mostly about daylight come, which I'm about to get to, <laughs> I really wanted to talk to you about Dog Heart because it's one of my favorite books. Um, Thank you. It's one of my favorite books in general, not just of your books, but in general. And it is because it tackles, it really, really pulls you apart. It really, really does. Because on one hand, you feel like, oh my God, this criminal, 
And then on the other hand, you feel so sorry for the circumstances that created the criminal that we're looking at. And I think that if we had more of our people who make policy, reading books like Dog Heart, and understanding that, listen, the policies that we're making, it can't just be about arrest and lock up and throw them yeah. in jail and leave them here. It cannot so be about that. You know, not so everybody can be rehabilitated, but most can. Yeah, most if, they, can. If, they, if the social conditions are different and if mm -hmm. our interventions are made come early enough, I, I do believe that. I believe the thing that. I would like about that is that I have read, rarely talked about the sort of experience I had with these four boys because I did not want to sort of use that as this opportunistic book promotion, if you know what right. I mean. I mean, yeah. there, there was that opportunity. And I didn't want to do that. But at a point in time when Christopher was arrested, I was very disturbed by the commentary about, you know, his so-called dog-heartedness and, and, and this sort of you know, way we regarded this young boy um, who I had known. And that is what really, you know, in, influenced me to, to talk about the experience I had had, because I wanted to say that, you know, the this boy who I met when he was, I don't know, about 10, maybe, mm -hmm. nine or 10, he was a loving, lovely child. And something, something clipped that yeah. switch. You know, years of. I, want, I wanted to say that. I wanted to acknowledge that, you know, so that we could have a different, a more nuanced discussion about right. life of somebody like Christopher. Well, that was good. You really, really achieved that. So let's get to daylight come because. <laughs> Whole different problem. <laughs> Whole different problem. And one that you are uniquely qualified to address as a serious environmentalist. I'm an environmentalist, but I'm not the serious environmentalist like you who studied and who have spent years and years of your life fighting to save this planet that we live on. Um, I'm one of those people who follow the work that you do and follow the work that other people do. And I had the absolute privilege of going to Antarctica in 2007, being the first Jamaican woman on record to go and just seeing for myself what a wonderful world this could be if we could breathe fresh air, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, like truly fresh air <laughs> without all the pollutants. And so daylight come, daylight come is a fantasy, but as with everything else that you do, it makes you stop and think that could this fantasy become a reality? So just give the synopsis of Daylight Come, because it's better you do it than me. <laughs> First of all, I'm really jealous for your Antarctica trip. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to go to both poles, actually, the Arctic and the Antarctic. And I've read a lot about both of them. And I know exactly what you mean, although I've never been there, about the air quality and the yeah, difference sure, yeah. you get to an area that's not really been so impacted by human beings. I come also inspired by um, not only that happened to me personally, but reports that I saw where people in the Middle East who are building, who are construction workers mm -hmm. in high-rise buildings were falling from the scaffolding because it had been become too hot to go outside during the day. And I was away at the time when I saw these new, new reports. And when I came home, I started to think about it in a way that you do when you're sort of wanting to know if an idea is going to become a novel, not all mm -hmm. of them. And I started to observe the people who were working outside. This is something that's backdrop to anybody that lives in the Caribbean, you know, but if you really start to pay attention to it, you realize how much of our lives take place outside. Yes. You know, 
the security guards, I looked at the people building, constructing roads, farmers, and people selling outside of the road, open air market. You know, there's a whole big chunk of our lives, people just walking on the street, yeah. getting from places. The there's a whole chunk of place, the beach, outdoors, right? And I started to think about, well, what happens if it becomes too hot to go outside during the day in a place like the Caribbean? And so that's the basic premise of, of Daylight Come, which is that, you know, it's become too hot to go outside during the day. So life has turned around. Everybody works at night when it's cooler and sleeps in the day. But one of my protagonists, a 14-year-old girl named Sorrel, she can't sleep in the day. And she senses in her body that there is something wrong with this way of life. Um, the book is set in 2084. So not so far in the future that, I mean, a child born today might very well live to see 2084. True. They will live for her, his or her children will be alive in 2084. And so this, this young woman tries to convince her mother, Bibi, to leave the city where they've had an evacuation notice because of the rising seas, mm -hmm. to try and get to the mountains where there are hopefully cooler temperatures. And she's heard there are people especially young people living in the old way. And she wants to try and get there. She wants to try and have a more normal life. And so she can sleep at night and go outside in the day. Like it should be. <laughs> yeah, like it should be. So that's a basic story. Um, the mother and daughter do leave the city. And then, of course, they encounter all manner of dangers and decisions. And it's also an exploration of the relationship between a mother and a teenage girl, which sometimes can be problematic you know because right. each girl is you know becoming mouthy and talking back and um trying to craft her own persona right and their sort of realization of the types of sacrifice they have to make for one another and and they did have to make a lot of sacrifices but some of the other themes that came out in the book which i thought were really very relevant was just how this new society, this new way of living, because it's too hot to go out in the daytime and you have to work at night and sleep at day, but also all the other things that happened as a result of these environmental changes, such as the repressive government that right. came I think those, you know, it's very, it's true in history that in circumstances of chaos, which is what I'm describing, you know, they do tend to throw up repressive governments. Mm -hmm. So in daylight come, there's a government force called the Domins, and they're sad, shadowy, you know, they're not greatly described, but you, you get to understand that there are dangers that are posed by the government that, you know, any kind of dissent is not tolerated. And the other thing that's happened is due to all the various pollution in water supplies, you know, reproduction has slowed and hormone levels in men particularly have fallen. And so men are not that fertile, women are not that fertile, and men are also not so much disposed to violence. And so the, the domains, the, the government force has to train young men to be violent, it has to be inculcated in them. And so they, they want to control the reproduction of women, they take away the children when they're young, if they're males particularly. You know, so there's all of this kind of going on, which is a somewhat a feature of dystopian. Yes fiction kind of like that that um, tv show um handmaid's tale right. you know, that yeah. dystopian society where but i haven't actually read about it having its source in you know pollution in the fact that pollution has you know disrupted our sort of hormone levels and the, the various things that we assume including our ability to have children you know. it's 
interesting sure that someone has written about it though. i'm sure somebody has and it's interesting that you you made that connection because it is true that more women are turning to um other means of trying to conceive more fat more and more more couples are doing all kinds of things to try and conceive because it seems to be coming hard becoming harder and somehow you never seem to connect that with a pollution situation you know, they say it's stress, but stress, of course, is not just the stress of work and stuff like that, but pollution causes stress as well on the body. And somehow you've managed to make that connection. I try to include things that have already happened, not all in one place or all at one time. But I do know, for instance, that, you know, sperm levels in men have been documented as declining because of chemical pollution. Mm really seen anything about women's fertility I, I do know women are having children later and, and the stress that you mentioned mm -hmm. so but it's already known that there are falling sperm rates in men you know uh, other things in the book about what the different things that we would eat in such a world you know because fisheries have collapsed right. all our domestic animals have become feral you know so you know pigs and chickens and that kind of thing have become feral and actually attack human beings so, and this also has happened in other parts of the world. So I try to include oh, things that have, a, not at scale, mm -hmm. of course, but they are entirely possible um, at scale to happen. To happen. So you, you really believe that there could come a time when daylight come, could become reality if we don't do something? If we don't change the way we operate our societies, I am certain of it. The, the timing is unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And this question of feedback loops, tipping points, but the scientists don't, you know, the, the temperature is rising at a, at a certain level, but what scientists don't know is if there's going to be some tipping point when let's just say there's a, you know, a, a collapse of a very large glacier that causes, right. you know, the sea level to rise more than they've predicted, or one of the very big concerns now is acidification of the oceans. Mm -hmm. There are these, or, or even a volcanic eruption, which is not a man-made cause, but yeah. might tip things into a sort of runaway um, escalation of the, of, the, the, of the timeline. Right. So we don't know about things like that. And I do feel if we don't radically reorder the way we develop and what we regard as civilization, we will face a world like daylight come. Wow. And the world like daylight come was very scary. Can I tell you people very scary, um, especially for somebody like me who believes in climate change and, be, and, and I mean, I, honestly, I don't see how people don't believe in climate change. You, you see it every year. It gets hotter and hotter and hotter. I live in Florida half of the year and um, I really try not to come to Jamaica in the summer mm, because yeah. at least in Florida, you know, it's just as hot even hotter, but I can lock myself into an AC unit without yeah. APS being my problem. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, I don't really understand this business about belief because the, the warming temperatures is a fact. It's a fact. I think you, you can only perhaps say that you don't believe it's caused by human beings, you know? Mm -hmm. But that has been, that's been so well documented. Mm -hmm. You really have to be in some state of persistent denial at this point. Right to understand that yes temperatures are warming yes there are going to be these very serious impacts and it is human activity that is the main cause so what do we say to the people who um and this is still on daylight come but not 
what do we say to the people who say, well, you know, it's just a cycle. We had the ice age, you know, we're gonna have the heat age, then the ice age is gonna come back. It's just a cycle. You know, it has nothing to do with us. What do we say to those people? Well, it, you know, it is true that there have been, you know, sort of cycles in long-term climate, which, you know, I make the distinction between weather, which people climate. To include, right? But there's never been a case where we have caused it. No, you, you may stand in a position that well, it doesn't really matter who causes it. But if we know that this is going to have very serious impacts on our human civilization, it, it, I don't understand why we don't decide that since we caused it, we can do it. something to it. You know, how, how can this be something that we welcome? <laughs> It, 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 it's I mystifying think, to me. I think because a lot of people figure, well, it's going to be the next generation's problem, which brings me back to Daylight Come, by the way, because in Daylight Come, old age was like 40s. Right. You know, you, there was so no life expectancies start to shorten because of some of these pollution problems, because people are basically turned into refugees, right? And right. refugees don't live long lives. They don't have health care. They have poor living conditions, poor food, you know. And there are other, other threats from violence and so forth. So life expectancies have shortened. And in fact, there's a whole lot of resentment against older people who had that attitude you've just described. Well, I'm fine. And therefore, I'm not going to do anything about this because it doesn't affect me. And I think if, if, we, if that's how it does play out, there will be a whole lot of resentment and anger against the people of my generation who just sort of stood by and let it happen. And I actually don't believe people are that unconcerned about the health of their children and their mm -hmm. grandchildren. I think, I think people are concerned about that. You know, they don't want to bequeath to their descendants an unlivable planet, right. unlivable life. I think the, the mindset that needs to be pushed back on is the mindset that says, yes, I understand this is a problem. Yes, I know it is going to affect my children and their children, but they will develop the kinds of technology that will deal with it. Which is exactly what happens in Daylight Come, where they develop the technology, but now they've turned against our generation and the people 40 and over because they did nothing. And so they're disposable. What I love about Daylight Come is that it's all about this, all this environmental stuff we're talking about, but in a novel. So it's, it's a story, you know? So even somebody who isn't inclined to read the scientific stuff will be able to read this as a story, a real story of what could happen, you know? Well, I, I, of course, I hope, I, I, I do hope that this is a, a really good story, a fast-paced adventure story yes. with, of a relationship between a mother and her daughter, you know? But I also think, because I have been, had this, you know, 30 years as an environmental activist, that I, I, in my sort of first 10 or 15 years, was very preoccupied with getting the data right and the science right. Okay. And I spoke, I thought, thinking in a quite measured way about these problems. And I, now I feel differently. Now I feel that it is the job of everyone, all artists, and everyone who has a platform to reach people's hearts more right. than minds, you know? So to tell stories, to draw pictures, to create music that is really going to animate us and activate us rather than the dispassionate voice of science. So that's where I stand now. I, as I'm a storyteller and I want to say, hey, pay attention, you know, this is, this is how, how it could happen and hope to draw people into the problem without 
screeching at them or and beating them over the head beating them over the head just saying you know this is how it could play out meet these people you know are you interested in their in their circumstances their lives will they triumph and hope that the answer to that is yes and hope so because that that's kind of i totally get where you are because that's kind of what i try to do with stuff like my antarctica film you know it's about right. my trip but it's also about the environment i bring in into it some of that environment and the, the the statistics and some of the information so that in the middle of watching me walk around with penguins and getting jealous um <laughs> <laughs> you also are learning something about the earth that we're in and if each i feel like if each of us would do something you know it can be there can be simple things and you and i were talking before and you were saying you know it's a bigger geopolitical situation that has to be dealt with on that level. But if we can get people to even individually do some small things, I know that since the pandemic has struck, the plastic in the ocean is even worse. Yeah. You know, it's even yeah. worse. And the disposable masks and gloves are now filling yeah. up our, our gullies and everywhere. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't focus too much on that to the exclusion of the plastic because it's still a very long way away from eclipsing, you know, the, the damage caused by plastic. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I personally try to live my life in such a way that my environmental impact is reduced as much as possible, yes. you know, so I try and do those personal actions that you talk about. But I also recognize that those actions that I might take and you might take, and perhaps we even feel our sacrifices, they actually are not going to solve the problem. This is something I've, I've learned. I, I do it because it reduces my own feelings of um, sadness and guilt and this. So I do that because I try and live my life in such a way that, that it, it doesn't make me ashamed, if you know what I mean. Yes. But I'm also recognize that, you know, that's not going to the fact that I very rarely drink bottled water out of a plastic um, container is not actually going to save the planet. And what, what is called for from all of us is a much greater level of involvement in the whole political aspect of this, this of these, these, these problems, because the science is well known, you know, and, this, and the solutions are well known. It's not a, it's not a problem of science. It's a problem of of political political will and problem of will yeah yeah so that's what we're all called to do um to get more involved at, at that level and and then just to taking my plastic to the recycling depot around the corner okay so what's next what do you what are you working on <laughs> so I, I i put down fiction for a while because since about 2014 i've been working on a with a, a memoir slash creative nonfiction on my own environmental journey and it's, 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 I've been really making he heavy weather of it. It's gone from being an essay collection to being a memoir back to being an essay collection. But I decided, you know, Jet's 30 years old this year. So my, my own involvement is 30 years. I thought it's time to really decide if I'm going to publish this. So I've been working on that. And because of this sort of some other things happening in our society, I've included the intersection of race and mm -hmm. with environmental activism. This is a very sort of touchy subject to write about, especially for me, but I think it's, it has to be faced, you know, how yeah. so many environmental activists and especially in the Caribbean are light-skinned privileged people, you know, in what, in what way have we failed to engage with and involve 
you know, people who are not from our social class. And, you know, if that's been a failing, how can it be addressed? And mm-hmm. I don't, the book is structured around my own childhood experiences with places. Right. And then later attempts to get those places protected from, you know, various kinds of impact, right. tourism, mining, whatever. So I'm still, I'm still working on that. I'm at this point, not sure it will see the light of day, but that's what I'm working oh, on. Well, no, it has to see the light of day, though, because we rely on... The, it's a scary book to write. No, but the work that we leave behind as writers, as filmmakers, as creative people, artists, anybody in the creative industry, as the work we leave behind is the work that's going to help to change coming up. Maybe, so it maybe, has maybe. to make the light of day. You've spent 30 <laughs> years, 30 years working yeah. on the environment in Jamaica. We all know you from JET, you know, yeah. um, and so you have to leave that behind. You really have no choice, I must tell you. <laughs> that, that, that's what I'm working on right now. Yeah, you, you have a duty. You have to leave it. I hear you. I hear you. you have to leave it. You have to teach your sensei. So, Dana, it's been great talking to you. I look forward to when that book comes out, whenever that is. I look forward to chatting with you more another time where I know we're going to meet up on a couple of other forums, environmentally and otherwise. And it has been great. It has really been great. And I've really looked forward to this. Folks, listen, you have to check it out. Okay. She's Dana McCauley. The book, the specific book that I want you to read is Daylight Come. This can happen, people. It's a novel. It's a great novel. And it's a great novel for you know what I like about it too is that kind of like that tween. The tweens can read it. You know, I had to learn that term a few years ago. The in-betweeners between teenage and older teenage and adults and preteens and all of that. It's a book that really talks about what could happen. The adventure is real. The dangers in there are real. And the outcome of the book was, was good. It was good. It was good to the point where it reached. You know, like I can actually see more of this book. <laughs> so that was actually my thought. You know, I, when I wrote it, I I, I had envisioned just a, a sequel. Yes, I can see the sequel. I can see. I mean, where you left us is like okay, we're here. What next? So I'm looking forward to the sequel of Daylight Come as well. <laughs> okay as the book about your environmental journey. Ladies and gentlemen, Dana McCauley, Daylight Come. Please go out and check it out. If you have any, any interest in what happens to us on this planet and not Mars, if you have no intention like me to go live on Mars, then you need to check out this book. Thank you so much, Dana. Have a great day and I'll catch you again. Thank you, Judy. Thanks for your support. (laughs) What good. You too. That was simply a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Dana. Thank you, viewers, for watching. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for being with me again on Shelf Life. I'll see you again next week, same place, same time, and we'll see what else I have hanging out on my shelf. Bye.